Hello, it's Friday. Welcome to the check-in for community connection and conversation over the airwaves here on KBIA. Remember going to the theater, the process of going out and gathering with a group of people to see a live story unfold before our eyes in a way that transforms or challenges our worldview. That's what theater does, and it all might seem like a distant dream right now. This crisis has hit the theater world, even on Broadway and well beyond. Actors, writers, directors, dramatists have found themselves out of work and disconnected from their audiences and their art. Today, we're talking about how the world of theater and performance is moving onward online and connecting with audiences during this crisis, and how previous crises have inspired theater and performance in the past. Our guests today are two MU theater professors. Heather Carver is chair of MU's theater department. She has also researched and worked to put personal stories and autobiography on the stage in several projects, including her own one-woman show. And we also have with us uh, Professor Claire Seiler. Claire researches and practices equity in theater education, and she's directed some innovative projects here at MU that address equity issues and civil rights protests like the ones that are in the news right now. Uh, Welcome to the check-in, Claire Seiler and Heather Carver. Hi, Janet. It's great to be with you. Hi. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you for being here. Let me remind listeners, you can join the discussion today. Let us know how theater, art, and performance have helped you understand a crisis or simply helped you understand the experience of being human. Does that ring a bell? (laughs) If you remember, let us know the last (laughs) theater production that you went to, if if nothing else. First off, today, before we get to this theater discussion, we need to check in on something that is playing out in our country right now with the tragic death of George Floyd in Minneapolis that is sparking protests across the country. um, And there's some response here in Columbia and on campus. Let's check in with Amy Professor S. David Mitchell. Professor Mitchell researches criminal justice. He's written about Ferguson and the death of Michael Brown. He also chaired the UM Systems Diversity Task Force following the 2015 protests here on campus and helped the system create a plan for going forward. Uh, Professor David Mitchell, it's always a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the check-in. Thank you, Janet. Appreciate it. So, David Mitchell, the death of George Floyd is horrific, and it's one of only three. We need to add two names to this, as you reminded me earlier, Breonna Taylor, in Louisville and Ahmad Arbery in Georgia. Tragic deaths. Um, it, this one with George Floyd was recorded and the public is outraged. Let me just start generally. What are your thoughts as you observe what's unfolding with this? Yeah, so thank you. I mean, I, I think the, the most recent deaths, so with, with George Floyd, um, clearly watching a police officer, a law enforcement officer, engage in, in an act that has, that has resulted in his death, um, mm. you know, a murder fundamentally, um, that was caught on tape, it's quite problematic and it's quite traumatizing. Um, I think with respect to Ahmaud Arbery, it's somewhat different, right? Those are fellow, those are fellow citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, And with Breonna Taylor, that was also law enforcement. And so there is this real problem, this real concern, certainly if you are a person of color, certainly if you're an African-American male, that any interaction with law enforcement may result in your death. Mm -hmm. And, And that's really troubling. Right. And particularly, it's really troubling for me. I don't know if many folks, you know, your listeners may not know, as an African-American male, I may be a law professor and have degrees and privilege. And yet race is still a visible and a visual marker of who I am. And folks don't see that. And that, and, and that my privilege is not, if you will, a shield. And my privilege should not be a shield. My race, fundamentally, should not, should not be this sort of um, 
if you will, this this marker of, of an act of violence. So. Right. Professor Mitchell, we're in a pandemic that's already illuminating disparities and inequities with black Americans um, disproportionately impacted by this crisis. Is the backdrop of this pandemic a factor at all in what's happening now? Well, I think I think the, the pandemic has created a very interesting um, dichotomy uh, with respect to these issues. Um, I think some of the initial issues right, with respect to this where individuals felt unsafe to go out and protest, I think that has certainly been cast aside. Folks have sort of seen very much that they need to be out in the streets, engaging, expressing themselves, raising their voices. Uh, the backdrop of the pandemic, if you've seen in certain places, um, the wearing of masks or the not wearing of masks, I think there's been a most recent statistic that's come out of some cities that individuals who've been more ticketed for failure to comply have been African-Americans. Um, and yet we see on the other side, the dichotomies on the other side, individuals who are protesting their liberty and their right to not wear masks, being fully armed and not being arrested, not being fined, not being ticketed, and being white Americans, yes. right? And so this is a stark contrast. When, if you are black and you are protesting, and the response is this militarized response, and even with the most recent militarized potential threat, if you might say, from the president, that's a very different mm-hmm. aspect and a different, different reaction than others have been getting who are protesting um, to do something, quite honestly, that harms their neighbors, right? Yes. Let me just remind our listeners, we're checking in here on the check-in on KBIA. We're talking with MU Law Professor and Associate Dean David Mitchell about the tragic deaths of black American citizens at the hands of police. In recent days, this month happening, we're also going to um, segue this discussion into talking about theater and crisis with Heather, Heather Carver and Claire Seiler. Let me just say, we'll take as long as we need with this conversation with Professor David Mitchell. If something is on your mind, there's probably a lot on your mind right now. If you want to check in with Professor Mitchell, you have questions or comments about what's happening in Minneapolis, um, also in Louisville, also Georgia, uh, and how we respond as a community. Please join us. Um, Professor Mitchell, you mentioned the difference between the incidents at, with law enforcement. Um, by the way, the George Floyd um, death is particularly horrific because it's so casual. It goes on for so many minutes. Um, murder does not appear to be um, at all an overstatement on what's going on with that. And so people are rightfully um, shocked and outraged and taking to the streets on this. Um, but but then a couple of the other incidents, like Christian Cooper in Central Park, um, is at the hands of citizens invoking their racial privilege, as you have pointed out to me. Can you uh, help us unpack that uh, distinction? Yeah, I, I think so. So the, the Christian Cooper and, uh, and the Ahmaud Arbery cases, uh, thankfully Christian Cooper, Cooper was a non-fatal reaction, right, a non-fatal interaction um, with respect to uh, dealing with another citizen. But in that particular mm-hmm. instance, and, and quite honestly, before you even get to these incidents, you can look at the past year or 18 months of a host of, of incidents where African Americans have been in spaces they're legally entitled to be and have been challenged that their presence, that, that their presence is somehow illegal. Um, but this instance, she actually invoked a very old trope about mm-hmm. a black man attacking a white woman, right? Mm-hmm. This invokes images or, if you will, sentiments of Emmett Till. This invokes issues of Jim Crow South. This invokes those things about black men um, basically attacking white women. I mean, she used a, a very specific trigger, right, saying, my life is being threatened by an African-American man. Yes. Right? That was a very specific and a very poignant and a very historically sort of contextualized phrase to trigger a response from law enforcement. The two citizens engaging in sort of vigilante justice, 
right? Feeling as though they were the ones who were empowered to stop an individual. Um, and so what is, what is very concerning, I think, for African Americans is not only do you have fellow citizens who view your presence as something of a threat on a regular basis, right? Um, now you, you also have law enforcement, which has also been a longstanding historical piece. Um, I wrote a letter to my own faculty saying, you know, look, I may be a law professor here, but when I walk in my neighborhood, when I'm walking my dog, am I perceived as a threat to which someone feels as though they are entitled to invoke the power of the state to actually do something against me? And if that state power arrives, will I end up dead like George Floyd? All right. Uh, Let me just remind people you're listening to the check-in on KBIA, and we're talking with MU Law Professor and Associate Dean here at MU, David Mitchell, about the deaths of black Americans um, in recent days and also in recent months and beyond. Uh, We're also going to segue this conversation into uh, talking about theater and crisis, how we can transform our world through performance on stage. What comes to mind? What is on your mind right now with any of the above? You can join us at 573-882-9136. Dr. Mitchell, if you have a moment, let's take a caller. Um, Kate is calling from Columbia. Kate, thanks for calling the check-in. Welcome. Did you have a question or a comment for us? Well, it's a question and a comment. Uh, I'm a regular listener, and as my background, I'm a 65-year-old white woman with a background in social work and pastoral ministry, and you know, this whole experience we've been living through has put us in a new place. So I'm ready to speak out. Where is the outrage of my white brothers and sisters if what is going on? In the past six weeks, we have witnessed white people stand fully armed on state capitol buildings and get a nod in a week. And we have seen our black brothers killed over and over again by the state. Now, I'm the middle-of-the-road person, and it is time that we begin to speak out that have been keeping silence, because I do believe that a lot of my brothers and sisters that happen to be born white don't get it, and we need to pay attention. And I apologize for the sound of my rage, but that's what I feel. Kate, we appreciate you bringing your rage onto the check-in. It's, it's great to hear, and thank you for sharing what you're saying. You're saying it's not a them problem. This is an us problem. This is all of us. Um, white people speak up. It is all up. of us. David Mitchell, let's get a response from David Mitchell. Thank you for the call, Kate. Uh, thanks for, okay. for checking in. Take care, okay. please. David Mitchell, response to that? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, that's, that's quite accurate. Listen, um, this, is not a problem of, this is not a problem solely of African-Americans, right? And African-Americans can't solve this problem alone, right? We, we can't sort of, if, if you will, um, uh, address the issues of this kind of, of these acts of violence targeted, targeted against this particular community, against my community, right, without the assistance, without, um, if you will, others who, are, who view this as a problem. I mean, for the same reasons when we talk about the Me Too movement is not a woman's movement alone, right? I mean, that's a, that's a full societal movement. This is a full societal movement. We have to recognize that part of what we do is that we benefit from this privilege. And so, you know, I, I appreciate Kate's comments, but part of me wants to say that is it because white Americans don't speak out? Because they are beneficiaries of this privilege, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to navigate a space freely without being suspect, that's a freedom that black people do not have fundamentally. Right? And so when I think about walking into a store, when I think about driving my car, these are very conscious decisions on what I'm going to wear, how I'm going to act, 
what I'm going to say. Kate can bring her rage. If I bring my rage, I'm viewed then as an angry black man who's potentially threatening, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is the very different side that we exist on. So we, of course, need a full societal response in this, and it needs to be one that comes from a point of saying, listen, we can't sit idly by when the democracy we believe in isn't an equitable one for everyone. All right. David Mitchell, you and um, the University of Missouri released a statement, I believe, yesterday. Um, do you know how this came about and what's the takeaway from that statement? And also, let me just throw in with that, you know, what can we do? There's the, the campus releasing a statement. Um, there's Kate's, the, our caller's question, um, saying basically white people speak up. Um, I was going to just put out that general question. What do you think can be done here in Columbia and on campus? Um, what's a good response? What would you like to see? So the first thing is, I mean, I'm glad that the, the, the president, uh, chancellor uh, of the system and all those four, the four chancellors sort of put out a statement. I think it was a statement meant to sort of indicate fundamentally that as a society we all have a responsibility, and as a campus we have a responsibility. I think it was also a signal, quite honestly, to our students, um, all of our students, but most poignantly to our, our, our black students, um, that we recognize that this may be a traumatizing event, we recognize that this may be painful, mm -hmm. and that we as an institution, we, we, we understand that. Um, because quite honestly, most of our students are, you know, have returned home all around the United States or what have you, and they're dealing with this in their own spaces. Quite honestly, in that, in that same vein, my concern for them is, are they getting the right kind of counseling and care to deal with the trauma of these events and to be able to respond in a positive way? Um, with respect to our community, um, this is this notion that we need to hold ourselves accountable, and when things like this happen in our community, we need to hold them accountable with respect to if, if that happens. But more importantly, we need to make sure that law enforcement uh, in this kind of context is retrained, that our voices are heard in a very clear way, that no longer can this go on without, being, without holding people accountable, right? And so part of that means coalitions, if that means sort of getting together, if that means being part of groups like Race Matter Friends, mm -hmm. if that means engaging in a public way, a demonstration of this, right? But it's got to be more than just demonstrating because that hasn't accomplished the goal. It means getting people into places of power, right, who believe in criminal justice reform and who believe in reforming the way in which law enforcement interacts with African Americans. Um, and then, of course, more education about, in effect, not viewing African Americans as a threat uh, writ large. All right. Professor Mitchell, anything to add to this? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, for me, you know, it, it's a very personal issue. It's a very emotional one. Um, you know, I'm sure there are folks who are saying, you know, here's, an, here's a, a law professor who, quite honestly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of very, if you will, like I said, very emotional about this. And quite honestly, it makes me question the very function of my, of my own job as training the next level of prosecutors and lawyers to go out there to represent a system that doesn't seem to be representing African Americans uh, in the best way possible. Um, I'm hopeful that we won't see another George Floyd incident. Um, unfortunately, um, I'm not that optimistic. All right. Well, Professor David Mitchell, we so appreciate you coming on and sharing um, your, your comments, your insights right now. Um, we want to keep the discussion going with you, so please keep in touch and, and, and stay well. Thank you very much. You too. Thank, Thank you.
Thank you, David. Um, okay, that was Professor David Mitchell, MU Law Professor, um, also Associate Dean at MU, um, talking about the George Floyd death um, and the protests around the country. Um, again, let me just remind listeners, you're listening to the check-in here on KBIA, and we're going to segue into our conversation of the day with Claire Seiler and Heather Carver from MU Theater. We want to talk about how theater can transform perspectives and lives, and as we are going from that really heavy discussion and the heavy things that are going on around our country. Um, let me go to you, Claire, because I know that you have um, dealt with some of these issues yeah. in your work, um, the 2015 protests, also the Every 28 Hours plays, um, and uh, you are constantly, I think, sort of looking at how you, as a white person and artist, can address these issues um, with your black colleagues and the community um, through art. Uh, what, what is your response to what's going on and how you feel like theater can help transform some of these issues? Hi, Janet. Thank you for that. And thank you, Dr. Mitchell, um, who is a friend, a colleague, um, and this is an emotional time. Um, what I see is that performance is part and parcel of what we are seeing. Of course, um, the horror of George Floyd's death is caught on camera. Um, that's an instrument that we often use for entertainment. And if we do not think about the way that performance and the performance of black death has always been part of this country, um, we really miss the point of a broader connection here. The name of Jim Crow, the, the name of Jim Crow South that we give to these historical um, structures of oppression comes from a minstrel character. Um, it was a white man dressing up in black face, um, creating a parody of black life because frankly, white people did not know black people as so many white people still do not know black people because we are segregated. Um, the great historian Henry Lewis Gates has always talked about performance being the visual counterpart to Jim Crow. So yes, we have the policies, but all the legal policies and structures are enforced by a visual performative world that in the media, um, that on Facebook, that in the news, whether it was a newspaper in the 19th century or um, you know, a vine today, that you are consistently seeing black people as subjugated, but also criminalized. Um, and who's the viewer? Oftentimes it's, it's white people. So I think we have to think deeply about the ways that performance has been part of the problem. And then um, for me, as somebody who's an educator, I think of performance as being an avenue towards knowledge building. Um, man, I wish I would have had a black studies course in my high school experience mm -hmm. to get me a bit more knowledgeable about uh, a huge part of the population that I was not um, interacting with, that I did not know about history. Um, and so, so part of what I have tried to do is really embed uh, histories of black oppression and also uh, black joy, black, black pleasure. Uh, this past fall, we did the Wiz, which holds a special place in the hearts of African-Americans across this country because we have been wanting to also tell um, stories that center the black experience. And, and perhaps that's a bit odd for some, some white people like me to be doing. Um, 
but it's also an opportunity for us to get to know a broader part of who our, our culture is made up of. And, and for me, I think of whiteness and blackness, those macro structures. Of course, there's other gradations of ethnic and, and racial identities, but, but those black and whites are often um, the ones that constitute broader reality. All right, uh, Claire Seiler. All I can say is, wow, you you have thought about this, and you know what you're saying about understanding performance as part of the problem in our culture, um, and then trying to figure out ways that performance can be a solution and can transform our experience and our perceptions um, seems like one of the solutions. So, um, thank you so much. Let me just remind everyone: this is the check-in. We've got a few more minutes here. We're going to be on for about ten more minutes. That's enough time for you to join our conversation with MU professors Heather Carver. And Claire Seiler, um, remembering those days when we could all gather in a really cool space and hear a transformative story. What have those uh, transformative stories done for you? When has theater impacted you, particularly with crises and things unfolding in the news? Um, has theater helped you uh, transform or challenge your worldview? Um, Heather Carver, let me go to you. Um, first of all, welcome to the check-in and thank you for your patience while we get to you. But I know you have done so many um, an interesting work in theater arising from personal crises. Anything to add to all of this and uh, particularly oh. about your work with turning, transforming uh, personal stories into theater? Absolutely. Um, I think we're all um, engaging right now in this um, collective national trauma um, together and, um, and uh, our challenge uh, um, all of the stories happening now, right, um, in what people are looking at performatively um, in their own lives and then what stories are being told. And so in theater, we're always interested in whose stories are being told, how are they being told. You know, uh, it's a place where we make our sort of um, selves visible through our art, and um, and I would say for me um, and um, my colleagues through our citizenship and our resistance um, to oppression. And so, um, you know, one of the things that happens is whose stories are being told, and um, that's a continuous matter. And so when people start saying, like, how can this happen? How can this happen? It's been happening. This is this has been happening. Yes. And we yes. need to look at our own lives and our own stories and, and, and what are we privileging? And I think um, your caller, you know, talked about it. Professor Mitchell talked about the idea that um, that there are bodies spectacle mm. that are white bodies carrying guns that are not getting um, this um, enforcement um, from the government and people saying, well, they had it coming while well, they keep saying this um, to people um, for certain bodies, right? We're always policing um, bodies of color. Um, but also, as my colleague Claire pointed out, are we what stories of joy are we telling? So, you know, and yes. I know you're a journalist and I'm a theater storyteller, but we're all responsible in how we privilege the stories being told. And I think in a crisis, people tend to go back to um, quo. Yes. And that is, 
Yes, Heather. And our country's white supremacy. Yes. So I yeah. think that I think that part of as theater makers, what we're trying to do is to continue to push what stories we are telling, what stories our students are living, what stories are on their bodies, and how can we push them toward our stage, which for us is the way to create, um, you know, making meaning with an audience. And not having that audience right there right now is taking away that important part of our community, right? Right. People are today trying to figure out, do they go to a protest? Um, when they're also trying to be safe with their bodies, right? Yes. So how do they, because of the age of COVID, COVID right? We're in a pandemic, but they want to protest the bodies being um, killed in the streets. And so I think crisis heightens um, our awareness, but we at the same time have to make sure that we're not creating spectacle just to be a part of a drama that's going nowhere, right? The activism is important to us as we... Um, you know, engage in what is right and what is socially just. Thank you so much for that, Heather. And I, I'm glad you compared what you're doing to journalism because, you know, I was going to compare what you're doing to journalism and thought you might find <laughs> that a little startling. Um, we have a caller. Rebecca uh, is calling from Columbia. Rebecca, thanks for checking in. What's your question or comment today? Yeah, I would just wanted to comment on something that Claire had mentioned and also the professor had mentioned that sort of ties the two together, um, and that's that we're act, we have to act intentionally to embrace the black community and like she mentioned about the whiz. And, I, mm -hmm. I, you know, if you're a, a black man or the mother of a black um, person, you have to and educate that child how to act intentionally so as not to get in a lot more trouble than they possibly could. And we can learn so much from that experience and just act intentionally um, in our daily lives and be aware of the presence of others and how that affects our community. Yeah, that's such a great comment, Rebecca. Thank you for making that. And you're reminding me of something that the mayor of previous mayor of Kansas City, Sly James, I heard him say, um, Let's all be friends. Like If you literally have diverse friendships, I know as a mother, when my kids are going to hang out on the plaza, if they're going with their black friends to hang out on the plaza, that's a different conversation. I'm having an intentional conversation. So I'm hearing their mothers have that conversation with them on how to stay safe, what to do if you get pulled over. And you realize just by being in your community and in your friendships, um, that can be transformative. So at first I thought that Sly James was saying something that just sounded good. He's a politician. Then I realized that that is actually very powerful. Um, and the other thing that seems very powerful is storytelling. So um, thanks for saying that. I appreciate that. And I think you're right. Like the intentionality of the storytelling that Claire and Heather is talking about is profound. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, for calling in. And please stay well. Thank you as well. Okay. Take care. Um, Heather, I, before we go, I just have to ask, sure. we just have a, really only a few seconds, but I'm just uh, fascinated by what you're saying about um, the bodies of um, actors um, at, illustrating the bodies of ourselves and performing these issues on stage. And you, you co-edited a book called Voices Made Flesh, Performing Women's Autobiography. So like a journalist, you do get real stories from women. You've also done the Troubling Violence Performance Project with um, stories about relationship violence with women. Um, can you just talk a minute about the process? And, and I apologize, I've only got about 30 seconds for your answer, but can we just hear from you a little bit about these real stories of women um, and others and your own story and putting those on stage? 
Absolutely. Well, I think what's important is we started the work of troubling violence as a way of saying people aren't talking about, like right now, people are in their home in a way they haven't been before. And they're, is it, you know, one of the top killers of women is through violence in the home. And um, people don't understand how, you know, our society and the crisis is, is escalating those issues also. And I think the idea of having the, their voices out there um, telling their own stories is powerful. I think it goes into everything we do. I mean, as educators, I want my students and their different stories to be out there, right? Like this summer, we're doing a brand new musical by one of our students to hear his voice in all the spaces that we're doing remotely through our summer rep company. It's important okay. that his voice is out there telling this story. And right. um, I think through my work, that has been, you know, the goal is mm. to not keep stories. You know, if we sweep them under the carpet, then nobody's going to know. And so this is, right? yes, like this is the opposite <laughs> of like performing yes, them on exactly. stage and taking uh, intentional um, control of those stories and centering them. Heather Carver and Claire Slyler, thank you so much for joining this for the, us for this discussion. It's been really inspiring. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Have Thanks, a great Janet. weekend. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. And that's it for today's check-in. Thank you also for checking in with us. Have a great weekend. We'll be back here same time, same place Monday. Until then, stay well and stay in touch.